Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. This episode is a feature in our CEQA series, where I'm joined by co-host Corinne Lytle-Bonine, and we feature Andrew Saba, Managing Director at Stockdale Capital Partners. Andrew is responsible for asset management with a focus on healthcare real estate at Stockdale Capital Partners, a real estate investment firm based in Los Angeles. Andrew discusses how commercial developers approach CEQA and project planning and considerations for streamlining development for healthcare and housing needs in the state of California. Join us as we learn from a developer's perspective on engaging with environmental processes. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Jessa. My pronouns are she, hers. Hi, I'm Corinne, and my pronouns are she, her. And today we welcome Andrew Saba. He's Managing Director with Stockdale Capital Partners. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me. So first things first, how are you connected to AEP? Uh, I have known uh, you, Jessa, for quite a while, but um, also I think we've come across paths where we've interacted with your team as we're exploring various different elements for landscaping, uh, specifically sustainable landscaping design elements on some of our projects in Southern California. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us Um Again, we appreciate it. And uh, kind of give us a little bit of background. So you're managing director. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Like what led you to a career in real estate development and what does it yeah. mean to you? Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you like 20 years ago, I thought I was going to end up making beer commercials, uh, but that was not the case. Um, I ended up joining a property management company in South Florida that specialized in healthcare real estate. And at the time it was a fairly um, small but growing industry. And um, after about a year, I I thought to myself, you know, this is gonna be defensive. It's gonna be around a little while. And um, I just kind of stuck with it, invested in myself, uh, got some education, uh, you know, real estate license, um, you know, operation specific education, et cetera. And then uh, just kind of like migrated uh, closer to the capital, if you will, where the decision making happens. And over that time frame, worked up through operations into leasing and then into capital markets, which is the purchase and sale of assets. And then where we are today, we do <clears throat> both, you know, we do capital markets, but we also do where we're, we're buying, we're selling, we also develop uh, real estate. And then um, I work for a private equity group on the West Coast called Stockdale Capital Partners. Uh, I specifically head the healthcare division, so all the medical real estate that we invest in, and that's a nationwide effort. Uh, but then we also, as a firm, we tackle every asset class from hospitality, retail, um, industrial. We're now looking at multifamily. Uh, we've done office in the past, and um, we are looking at opportunities now, but we're generally an opportunistic group. And so... Um, I joined them about seven years ago. Uh, I've been in the real estate sector for close to 20 years and have been in and around development a number of different times. And most recently would be our project here in Los Angeles, which is now a fully entitled 145,000 square foot medical office building uh, immediately to the east of the city of Beverly Hills uh, at San Vicente in Wilshire. And we're very excited. We expected to we expect to break ground on that project in about a year. And um, I could 
pause there because I think I've kind of meandered into a lot that I think we're going to try and touch on in a moment. Yes, thank you. That's a that's a very great summary for uh, 20 years. I'm very impressed with uh, the succinctness and clarity at the same time. And so, yeah, but I mean, this is where you know we're talking about the environmental side of these projects and um, interacting with CEQA as you get these projects online. And so, when you are considering these projects and development, and what stage as a business do you begin discussing the environmental planning as it relates to CEQA? Early, very early. Uh, and frankly, a lot of that has to do with the municipalities. When you think about doing projects in California, there's obviously a, a, in many cases, if you think about doing projects across the country, California can be a little bit more cumbersome just because we have things like CEQA and and other processes that can be a little bit more challenging. But, um, you know, we think about how difficult it's going to be to get the project approved. And, you know, those those elements will, will vary depending upon what type of project you're going to deliver. If it's housing, there's a little bit more political momentum around uh, approving housing. So some of those uh, administrative processes can be streamlined. But if it's something that is more commercially related or if it's something that the there's not a lot of political will to force through, then you really will have to check every single box. So do you have any specific examples you could share when CEQA uh, has impacted the ability to deliver a project as planned? Um, certainly. And, you know, I will say that it's it's one sort of portion of the entire process as you think about development. So um, in a lot of cases, especially if you're touching projects that are like near wetlands or protected areas, you know, there's definitely a lot more consideration that you need, you need to include versus um, things that are like by right development in a site that's already been developed. And so anytime that um, you see this a lot in NorCal, actually, uh, where there's projects in and around or that are like new build where you're actually touching raw dirt that's never been developed in the past, that is where you'll have a little bit more interaction with CEQA because in a lot of cases in a state as dense and developed as California, you, there's a reason that a lot of that space is still green. And so in times there's protected species and or um, wetlands or habitat that are preserved for, frankly, for environmental reasons. And um, you, you just have to navigate that. Uh, and so I, I don't have any specific examples that come to mind uh, in terms of development projects. I just know that over the years, firms that I've worked with before have had to navigate um, CEQA as part of the development process in getting the entitlements to build. So do you, Andrew, when you're, you know, looking at um, early stage development for properties, do you, you know, factor in whether or not the intended use is permitted by right? Yes, absolutely. And then from there, it's, you know, how much how much of of a process is it going to be who do we need to work with uh so as a for instance on our project at 656 San the the medical office building I, I mentioned earlier uh, we worked with a public outreach group because we knew that there was going to be um, a lot of concern around specifically traffic and parking which we're uh, working with the neighborhood uh, and have been working with them in fact we were working with them years before we even started uh, our formal EIR application. And so 
just to give you guys context, we acquired the site in 2015. We recently received the entitlements in 2022. So that that's a seven year entitlement process. That's a little atypical. Obviously, there's a bit of COVID. California light speed. Yes, yes. That's uh, um, so. You know, to to more succinctly answer your question, I would say yes. We absolutely look at what's by right because that will determine how much more you're going to have to navigate as part of the process. And what does it mean, like when? How do you as a developer and, you know, like for you on the, the capital market side, I don't know if this is taken into consideration, but the financial impacts of the delays on, I don't know, I guess like the rent or sale price, depending on like the end delivery of like what you're doing with the project, like how does that roll up into it? Because I'm thinking <laughs> with, <laughs> um, you know, with housing, especially, I mean, this project was medical, but, you know, healthcare obviously costs are through the roof. And then housing prices in California are very expensive. And so we have all these laws and regulations in place, which I love as a citizen of California, but I also understand that there can be a lot of financial impacts um, as a result of enforcing these regulations. And so just wondering how you're able, like with something with an entitlement process that long, um, like how do you account for that in like the, <laughs> I don't know, the the Cap sheet, balance table, whatever financial yeah, tools. Yeah, yes, that's that's that is the question, right? Um, so uh, that saying "time is money" is very relevant here. Um, the longer a project is going to take to get through the administrative and approval process, the more expensive it's going to be. Um, the more consultants and various different outreach groups you need to bring into the conversation the the more expensive it's going to be and so all of those things compound upon each other um and then on top of that you have like it's it's very much akin to the time value of money um it's just it doesn't seem like uh or i guess i think it's a little bit nebulous for people to to keep a track of because they're not actually looking at the invoices but in a project that takes five years to go from the time you bought it to the time that you're actually breaking ground to deliver you know, you have the purchase price and then most investors requ require what's called like an annualized return on their money. And that return is embedded in your like what I'll call your your basis appreciation. So if you bought it for a million dollars and to use round numbers, you want a 10 percent annualized return before um, there's any sort of like profit sharing mechanism that happens after that, then five years just using like the simple compounding your your new basis is probably going to be close to like 1.5 or 1.6 million dollars so like you've immediately had about a 50 to 55 percent basis increase just because of time and then there's the actual nominal cost of every single consultant you brought into the process so you know that could be several hundred thousand dollars across legal you could spend another hundred thousand or two in the consultants that you use underneath legal because you you'll use like um land use council to potentially go through like a, a plan amendment for instance if it's not by right um there are a, a whole host of different constituents involved in getting um processes processes approved in municipalities where things are difficult um i don't think that it would be unfair to say that california has been known to have a lot of these difficult municipalities not to point fingers at any one in particular 
And so um, the longer projects take, the more thought through they need to be, the more expensive they are. Um, uh, and then on top of all of that is, you know, it's all circular, right? So if these pros projects cost a lot of money, then um, they're the intrinsic rent that needs to be paid to pay off that project is higher. And so for people to be able to afford that rent, they need to generate more money. And so for them to generate more money, they have to charge more. And um, for people to pay those prices, they need to make more money. And like some of those people are the construction folks and trades that are building the project. So the project then becomes more expensive just by virtue of that whole cyclical nature. And that is somehow a, a bit of like an oversimplified version, even though it was a long drawn out example of how the development process and things can become very expensive very quickly. Um, and, you know, it, not to, not to pick on SQL, it's, it's part of that, but there's, there's a lot of factors that go into the development process and every little piece adds up and, and the time component is the part that it just magnifies everything with compounding. I think the other thing just on on time um, is that, and, and I'll ask Andrew to correct me um, if this doesn't apply to his projects, but for renewable energy projects, we don't generate any income until it's built, operating, generating electricity. So we, you know, put a ton of money into, you know, developing, building these projects. And it's not until the very end that we see any, you know, income coming in from it. So that's certainly oversimplification of it. But the longer it takes to build it, the more we delay actually generating any sort of, you know, income from that project. A hundred percent. Yeah. And and the the thing about all of it is that very rarely are these projects built with, um, 100% equity capital or meaning like full at risk. So there's debt and there's lenders involved too. And a lot of that adds legal and administrative um, burden. And when I say burden, just think cost. And so when you think about building these, you know, multi-year projects that take one to two years, and these are, you know, in some ca companies cases, billions of dollars of projects, um, that's a lot of capital that is charging interest that needs to be paid back so like the rent not starting two years in, you can see that you're starting from a very, very deep basis and a hole you have to climb out of when you think about trying to, to generate rent to get to like positive income. And so a lot of times these projects are net negative for many years um, after not only breaking ground, but also after delivering and rent starts. And it's such an interesting interplay also between um you know, permitting and financing, especially, you know, things like tax equity financing, because, you know, we go through the permitting process and we're, you know, checking the boxes, doing what we need to do with the, you know, different AHJs and, you know, municipalities having jurisdiction. And then, you know, either, you know, during construction, after construction, both, um, we then have to make our case to financing institutions and we get hit with a whole other host of questions about well why did you permit it this way why did you do that and it actually you know as we see changes in the financing industry it changes the way we permit projects um so it's you know i think kind of a unique perspective on the development side is that you know we make decisions on what studies are we doing you know are we going above and beyond you know necessarily the regulatory requirements because we're going to have to you know stand in a room in front of you know financers and and prove that you know we're mitigating their risk as well as following the different permitting requirements that we're supposed to do exactly there's there frankly there's at times dozens of proverbial cooks in the kitchen 
and um, you have to have an answer and a thought through plan to to address you know you're never going to get to 100 but 90 to 95 percent of everybody's concerns and then you know at some point you you get the the green light but i will tell you that it's it's funny because i think a lot of people look at projects that are breaking ground and they're thinking like oh man that's that's such a great development or such a great project and those deals were done years ago like many many years ago we just toured a project uh, yesterday as a medical building and the land site was sold for development in 2018 and they broke ground in 2019 it delivered a year and a half ago so you can see like these these decisions these you know multi-million to billion dollar decisions are made in the past so far in the past and i think um particularly in states that have higher administrative burden that's very true And so one of my questions, and I think this is a little bit along the the timeline for entitlements and streamlining is there are these, you know, in California, there have been, there's been legislation to streamline uh, specifically for housing, uh, you know, housing and uh, clean energy are top priorities for the state. And so for a developer in your perspective, are the streamlining, the legislation that's passed, like. SB 35 is one I was looking at. I think it was recently extended, but are there, is that enough? Like are the, is what the state is doing to streamline housing development? Is it attractive enough in your opinion? And this could be for your business or just you as a professional in the industry for developers to increase housing supply. There's uh, certainly time inefficiencies gained by um, streamlining certain administrative processes, but um, that is sadly just one small piece of the puzzle. So like as you stack up the the full list, if you will, of expenses, um, the administrative piece is not um, insignificant, but um, when you think about things like labor costs, construction costs, um, time to actually just execute, because like some of the, some of the, hurdles are actually just related to the build timing as well. Um, this is just an anecdote. This is not at all celebrating another country, but um, we sat down with a major healthcare system uh, here in Los Angeles, and they have built a hospital in two different countries, and they convinced those countries to let them use the plans that they had here. So this team designed it, controlled construction and the deliverables because they were approached by those countries to say, like, we consider you guys a center of excellence around healthcare, and we'd like to see you build a hospital here. And they said, fine, we'll do it. But it's on our terms. And um, one in particular, they said they did it in China. Uh, they did it at, um, I think he said, a tenth of the cost. And it took them like less than a year. And if you think about that versus trying to build a hospital here, you can just see the difference. And obviously a lot of that is labor materials administrative, but when, when the process can be completely streamlined and focused in uh, for the delivery of that mechanism, I think that is an interesting juxtaposition as you look at like the, the layers that we have in our system um, set apart for a moment, um, any differential in labor costs. Um I don't know that I necessarily addressed the question head on, but uh, no, I just I think that that's a very relevant uh, example. Um, so 
I would say that taking time out of the process will be helpful, but I don't know that it's going to necessarily solve everything because construction costs are still very, very high. Um, land costs in infill environments are very high. And I think that's where we have some of the biggest housing shortages and repurposing projects, getting increased density in projects is still difficult because you, you still have to navigate all the stakeholders. And a lot of the stakeholders are the residents in, in the vicinity and the businesses and that are going to be impacted by the construction and the increased density. Because you think about changing or up zoning or increasing the density of a site, all that means is you're just adding more people or more use on a physical footprint of land. And everything that goes along with that needs to be considered, including the um, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing facilities that are serving the site. You know, there's got to be places and power for people to use the facilities. And, um, you know, if the sewage system can't handle more people, then that needs to be upsized and considered. And Like, there's a lot of different components that feed into it that it's great that the government's thinking about streamlining, but there needs to be like a much more comprehensive view because I think when it gets down to the, the local level, there's, there's certainly a lot of um, just say nuance associated with uh, delivering development projects. Corinne, what have you guys seen? Cause I, I think you've handled very, very big projects in, uh, in your tenure there. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, I totally welcome to more streamlining tools have probably a million different suggestions on how we can make, you know, building, especially infrastructure, renewable energy, uh, residential work, um, easier. Um, but I, I think, you know, kind of the different way to look at that and what we see, you know, in, in renewable energy and with our budgets is that, you know, permitting is usually just a drop in the bucket, just, you know, what you said, and we're not necessarily the biggest, um, you know, cost, but it is, you know, usually the biggest like level of uncertainty. Um, and then uh, typically also we're the longest pole in the tent <laughs> in terms of schedules. So, you know, it, it's less of a, you know, we want to spend less money doing permitting, but we we need to have some certainty on what it'll cost and how long it'll take. Um, and, you know, to the extent we can have, you know, probably a better understanding of, you know, how can, as you move through a secret process or Endangered Species Act uh, process, how can that change the project? And then what does that mean when, you know, we're at 30% design and we find, you know, a, a vernal pool that has fairy shrimp in it? Um, so having, I think, more certainty over those processes is probably even more helpful than trying to streamline. Um, that feels like a very specific yeah. example that you may have some emotional <laughs> trauma over. Yes, one, one, of, one of many. Um, but Andrew, I wanted to ask you, um, it seems like, you know, we may have a, a unique opportunity, you know, in the, you know, post-COVID landscape where, you know, we had a lot of office space. It looks like we're probably not going to need as much office space as we currently have, you know. And, and like we've said, we've identified a need for housing. We, you know, we've identified a need probably for more infrastructure, like, like medical um, space. You know, what are you guys looking at, you know, any unique solutions to converting, you know, the, the smaller need for office space to what we actually do need in those, you know, more dense urban populations? Yeah. And that's right now, that's the question everyone's asking is what happens to all the under and unutilized office space? Um, 
I will say that not all office is created equal. And um, I think a lot of the older vintage office, the the physical infrastructure itself is probably obsolescent for a lot of uses. And, um, you know, in markets where things get so infill, like uh, San Francisco or Manhattan, where land is just so finite that it becomes precious you can reuse a lot of the bones of these buildings but um in particular like a market like socal it's actually still a pretty sprawling market Mm -hmm. and there there is still a lot of opportunity for adding density to new sites as opposed to trying to repurpose existing i think there's going to be market specifics everywhere there will be opportunities to convert we have been actually been looking for years um, even pre-pandemic at the conversion of office to medical. Some of the specifics there are really just about um, does it meet the functional physical elements required for medical? Some of that is just like, are the columns spaced appropriately? Do you have enough height in between the floors? Um, does it have enough parking? Um, and then, you know, outside of that are the nice to haves, which is how how's visibility, how's access, um, you know, patient wayfinding, things like that. Uh, there will be opportunities for repurposing. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's one of the things I considered uh, on a trip recently to another country. It, it, when you think about it, it's, it, it is kind of an inefficient system when you like you step back and think there's all the square footage built for people to live for half the day. And then there's all the square footage for people to work half the day. And so it, it actually makes sense that some of that space that people aren't working in would be rationalized and repurposed. Um, my fear is that it will not be as efficient or economical to do that um, to the extent people would like to just look at, okay, there's call it 20 billion square feet of non-essential office that we could repurpose. I think only a small percentage of that is potentially repurposable to something else. I know a lot of folks are looking at reusing office for multi to solve the housing need. It's very challenging to repurpose a lot of the newer product. And I'll say like relatively newer, like in the last 40 years is built with non-operable windows, for instance. And like in most residential projects, the windows open Um, things like that, that you don't think Mm -hmm. about they're small components, but being able to open a window in a a condo or an apartment building is actually kind of a, a big deal. Uh, and so, and that's not a small fix. You know, you're, you're talking about a, a full replacement of a glazing system that um, you look at across a, a million square foot building, like all of a sudden the differential between um, repurposing that existing asset and like rebuilding new right next to it, that that difference starts to shrink as you look at all of those incremental costs. Um, the elevator systems, for instance, may not be designed to handle the kind of traffic you're going to get for multifamily or like for dense apartment living versus uh, a commercial office building. Um, you know, the parking is probably overbuilt. So you actually have a lot of spare capacity there, but you might need more plumbing. You have to repipe and replace everything. The floor plan may not lay out. There's a lot of different nuances that when you just think of like the raw square footage, it would make sense. But um, I think the sad reality is that a lot of that is it's purpose built and um, there may not be as much overlap as we'd all hope. Well, that's disappointing. <laughs> it is, but I will say there's going to be opportunity. And I, and I think that there's still going to be 
um, ways to to integrate both um, living and working where you have this integrated live work play because that was still a very popular concept that you saw take hold pre-COVID that I don't think is going away. I think people want the convenience of being able to walk to work or like being proximate enough that um, the commute, the time lost your commute is, is immaterial. Um, but you know, that's, I would say one of the things I have to caveat with like my views may not necessarily represent the views of my firm. So. <laughs> well, we have to wrap up. We could talk to you for probably a few more hours about all this stuff. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to do our wrap up rapid five to close out. So first of all, um, what is your favorite daily habit? Um, you know, since becoming a dad, it's actually waking up, uh, and hanging out with my kids in the morning. What are three things you would bring to a deserted Island? Can family count as one? Sure. Okay. Then in that case. All right. Uh, so then family, uh, Snickers bar and, uh, McConnell's ice cream, Eureka lemon and Marion berry. Try it. It's amazing. I think we have to now. Yeah. Okay. This next one is what is your favorite environmental policy, which might not be super applicable (laughs) for you. So maybe one is like, what is it an environmental policy that you are, uh, you like, you appreciate the most as like a California citizen? Uh, no, I'll actually say I, I really like, um, the requirement to deliver to lead minimums. Um, I I've, I've never been a huge fan of the labeling. I've always been a fan of, um, being efficient for the sake of being efficient, being green for the sake of being green, um, to the extent that those give you a seal you can put on your building and give someone else a, a better feeling about where they're, they're renting or living. That's great. But, um, I like the fact that in a lot of ways, California holds developers and owners to a, a higher standard as we deliver the sort of new wave of product. Great. What is your favorite flora or fauna? Um, I'm just going to say palm trees, but if you want me to get really specific, I would say the Bismarckia palm. Oh, we love specificity. All right. And then finish this sentence. Wouldn't it be cool if, I'm trying to stay uh, very neutral. (laughs) Wouldn't it be cool if every day were Friday? There we go. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. We really appreciate it. And um, thanks for having me. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Great catching up. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated when new episodes are released and leave us a review to let us know what you think. It also really helps us to share the podcast with others who may enjoy learning about the environmental industry. If you want to submit a shout out or any feedback, please send an email or voice memo to podcast at califaep.org. The email again is podcast with an S, podcast at califaep.org.